Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we're going to be revealing our top three mythos artifacts. Well, we're going to be doing more than just giving a top three list. We're going to be talking in general about how you can use mythos artefacts in your games, uh, some example mythos artefacts, and if time permits, we may even try brainstorming or creating one ourselves. We have the technology. Yeah, I didn't bring all this shit with me for nothing. Yeah. This bucket of peace blood had better go to use. Yeah, yeah. And not just milkshakes. Mm. I like my milkshakes. <sighs> But before we get into that, you're going to Gen Con, aren't you, Paul? Lucky bugger. <laughs> <laughs> you mean to tell me you're not coming, Matt? First time in... Um, I've been for the last five years, but I simply can't make it this year. The cult Kickstarter drained my funds too much, and it's, paying for two people to get over there with me and Tiff wasn't going to happen anyway. And it's no coincidence, every time you've been, that the attendance figures have risen by about 10,000. <laughs> <laughs> and that's no that's, exaggeration, I think. That's just your entourage. Uh, what did you say? I was a magnetic personality. <laughs> but yes, I will be there. I'm touring across uh, the north of the USA this year. Um, I'm visiting Glacier Park, and then I'm visiting... Uh, where am I visiting? The Badlands. But then I'm also going to be calling in on Dan, Keeper Dan, from the Miskatonic University podcast. Fantastic. Hey, hey. Hands across the ocean and all that. <laughs> Uh, and uh, from there, we're going to be touring down to um, Indianapolis. And on the Thursday evening, you'll love this one, Matt, of lucky, course. Lucky, lucky bugger. What did, I, what did I book? What was the first thing for all the Gen Con things that I made sure was booked? The same thing that I would do. St. Elmo's. St. Elmo's oh. Steakhouse. So, so basically, you, you are going to the US for a steak <laughs> and coincidentally attending a convention. It better be good, because I've, I've, I've done nothing else but tell my family how great this place is. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's fantastic. It yeah. is fantastic, right? If, if they turn up and they're unimpressed, it's going to be devastating to you. Yeah, yeah. I think we could have a whole podcast just about that, actually. Scott's not been. I mean, and, he, doesn't, yeah. he doesn't understand. And wrap up the whole trip with a trip to Fogo de Chao. You have to do yeah, there as well. Yeah, we probably will do that as well. Some of the most yeah, amazing yeah. caperinias I've ever had. So. But you're going to be on the Chaosium stand? As, as well oh, as you're the always dragging house. it back to role-playing games, Scott. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Some you're talking about thing. shrimp sauce. <laughs> yeah. Could you bring me back some bottles, please? I'll bring you back a bottle. You, you'll be yeah. sitting at the Chaosium stand with a doggy bag. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. So anyway, yeah. Uh, on the Friday at Gen Con, I'm going to be on the Chaosium stand with Mike Mason. And we're going to be signing 7th edition books and um, chatting to people. So if you are a fan of the show, then please do come along and say hello and introduce yourselves and uh, be uh, glad to see you. Uh, I don't know if I'll have any special prizes, but um, I'll, um, yeah. Give them a winning smile. <laughs> Maybe a sticker. We have some stickers, right? We do. Yeah. Yeah. Talking to myself go. here, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so the first few people will get a Jackson Elias sticker. There you go. I can't what, say fairer than that. What more could you want? And then on the Saturday, I'm just going to be going to Gen Con with my family. All four of us are going to be going in and touring around. And uh, we're booked into True Dungeon in the morning. And Matt's shaking his head. He wasn't a fan. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It's going to be good. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and then, you know, just taking in all the all the, the Gen Con goodness for the rest of the day, all the... the, the the costuming and the uh, and the trade hall and the uh, the uh, the card hala. Oh yeah, um, yeah, 
you know, all those things. And the indescribable funk of Gamer in the air. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> on, on a Saturday, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Much like the smell in the recording studio once we're done with an episode. <laughs> Given, given it is a very warm day today, I don't think it's going to be the end of the episode we have to worry about. Yeah, I don't think Lucy's going to be able to open that window wide enough at the end. <laughs> yeah. every, every week she comes in and throws the windows open. Yeah, I can feel I the miasma brewing already. It is pretty mm. warm today. I will report, folks, that wonder upon wonder has happened today. Me and Matt stood here oh, God, in our, yes. in our, in our yeah. you know, regular shirts. Scott's turned up and said it is warm today. I'm taking one of my shirts off. Mm. He has arms. He really does. He does have arms. We can see his forearms today. Scott, the man who is impervious to heat or cold or temperature of any kind, yeah. has actually, you know, shed an outer layer. Yeah, it it is warm in here today. Make make a note of that men, of that monumental note in history, folks. <laughs> it's rare that that happens. And another news, Scott. I, I read here that we have a Section 46 Operations Manual released. What does yes. this mean? So this is one of the books that was funded by the World War Cthulhu Cold War Kickstarter. And it's sort of like the SOE handbook, except updated for the rather more murky world of 1970s espionage. So if you want to know how to uh, make a dirty bomb, dispose of a body, uh, you know, deal with uh, guerrilla groups uh, in, in you know, the least dangerous manner possible, this is the book for you. With the Section 46 Operation Manual, Scott, uh, I mean, tying it into today's topic, are there many kind of, not mythos artefacts, but are there, you know, I imagine there's quite a lot of uh, special equipment in there. There's a little bit, yeah, but, uh, yeah, no, not artefacts, but um, things like bug detectors, listening devices, um, all sorts of stuff on nuclear devices and so on, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the last thing that we'll mention before we jump into the main topic is that uh, Paul and I recorded with the How We Roll crew last night. Yeah, we were there with Owen and Joe from How We Roll, and Mike Mason was uh, keeping the session. It was a scenario from, is it Doors to Darkness? It is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, I think Joe is going to have that up and out possibly Monday. He seems to be a ninja at, um, at the editing, so he's going to have that done in, in real quick time. Yeah, he and Keeper Dan really show you up, Paul, don't oh. they? <laughs> I'm, I'm, like, um, meticulous, that's the word. I think that's the word. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yes, yeah, it will certainly be out before this podcast is out, so I shall link to it from the show notes. Yeah, I would have liked to have been there, but as Paul has uh, said, my usual excuse of not being at a game before is that I was indeed running another game. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. As far as excuses for not gaming is concerned, yeah, gaming is a pretty good one. Yeah, especially as play, playtesting the scenario for the, at the time of recording, the 7th Ed launch party that's happening tomorrow. Yes. yes. Yeah. With uh, Matt, it's games all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> but finally, before we launch into our main topic, let's have our Lovecraftian word of the week. Yes. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. Our Lovecraftian word of the week is show. This is going to be a really weird definition to read out in this case, <laughs> but we'll explain what I mean in a minute. A verb, an archaic version of show. 
Wait a minute, Matt. So show is an archaic version of show. What are you telling me? He's <laughs> <laughs> like recursion. Did you mean recursion? <laughs> well, this is inspired by a discussion in episode 82 where we talked about Pickman's model and the fact that the word show in there caught our eye um, because Lovecraft uses the archaic spelling of it, S-H-E-W. And, of course, Lovecraft used the archaic spelling every time he used show as a verb. If you go through his fiction, the only time he spells show with a W is when he's using it as a noun. A W? An O. <laughs> I was going to say, if he's, if he's using it without a W, I'll really want to see it. <laughs> yeah, he was terrible at spelling his old Lovecraft. <laughs> So should we go for pronouncing it shoe? As, no, I quite uh, like taking that. You, you prefer yeah. having show? Because was, was it at one time pronounced shoe? Yes, yeah, it, it was. I mean, it's still occasionally used with that spelling, S-H-E-W, in the modern day, usually in legal documents. And, you know, certainly throughout the 20th century, I mean, even until... Uh, yeah, 1960, there was a sign uh, in Waterloo Station which said that all tickets uh, had to be shown, and it was spelled S-H-E-W-N. Um, so, shown or shoon? But, yeah, in the 20th century, it was tended to be pronounced show rather than shoe. But if we go back far enough, it is shoe. So this is basically another... It's the verb version of tomato-tomato. <laughs> God. Well, <laughs> or alternatively, uh, Shrewsbury, Shrewsbury. Yeah, I think that's a good example, yeah. Because yeah. which which one is right, I'm not too sure. No, Shrewsbury, because I mean, it's the only one I've heard. <laughs> You've heard no, of Shrewsbury, not, right? That, that just sounds wrong. But but um, apparently they had a debate in Shrewsbury some time back about how it should be pronounced, and more people came down on the side of Shrewsbury than Shrewsbury. Really? Yeah. This split in the spelling seems to be something that's been around for some time. So I mean, even if you go back to uh, Jacobean times, the King James Bible... Uh, uses uh, you know the e spelling uh, consistently throughout. Again, like Lovecraft, it only uses show with an o as a noun. Uh, whereas if you go to Shakespeare, well, Shakespeare, as always with spelling, seems to be incredibly inconsistent. Um, but the vast majority of the time, when he's talking about it uh, as a verb, it's with an o. You know, this lack of consistency is not a new thing. In mm. fact, you would say it's consistently inconsistent. But yeah, as I said, Lovecraft you know, used uh, it consistently as a verb, um, and he used it a lot. I mean, if you do a search through his fiction, um, you know, show, showed, showing with that E spelling turns up 290 times. So that actually makes it, I think, the most common Lovecraftian word of the week we've had so far. I was going to say, let's pretty much all of them added together. <laughs> Let's take a look at how Lovecraft used this word in his work. Uh, we're going to use the pronunciation shoe just to highlight when we're actually saying the word in the quotes. Whether you want to pronounce it shoe or show, well, as Matt said, tomato, tomato. It's tomato. Catsup. Yeah. <laughs> but not when you're ordering a pizza in a Californian hotel room service. I found tired one night, I reached for the room service and asked for a tomato and basil pizza. <laughs> And did, the lady did, on the other end, after a few attempts, was just like, I don't know what you're talking about, sir. I, and did I you ask like, for extra oregano on it? Oh, God. Yeah, I should have done. <laughs> I didn't think of that. Oh, you remind her that it's a herb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I give up on the English language. Oh, what's the Tomato and basil. 
There's no end to this. But luckily, Lovecraft didn't talk about vegetables. He talked about shoe and show. Hit it. From he. The green moon, shining through broken windows, shooed me the hall door half open. And as I rose from the plaster-strewn floor and twisted myself free from the sagged ceilings, I saw sweep past it an awful torrent of blackness with scores of baleful eyes glowing in it. And from The Call of Cthulhu. The very sun of heaven seemed distorted when viewed through the polarizing miasma welling out from this sea-soaked perversion and twisted menace and suspense lurked leeringly in those crazily elusive angles of carven rock where a second glance shewed concavity after the first shewed convexity. And from Dagon. I think that these things were supposed to depict men, at least a certain sort of men, though the creatures were shewn disporting like fishes in the waters of some marine grotto, or paying homage at some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves as well. On to our main topic, our top three Mythos Artifacts. Now, Mythos Artifacts have been part of Call of Cthulhu since Call of Cthulhu's been around. And certainly, I mean, there's precedence for them in the fiction, but... Are they really there because role-playing came out of D&D and people wanted there to be magic items? Well, I think they do feature in a few of Lovecraft's stories. I mean, some of the artefacts, um, you know, they, they, they crop up in the, in the original fiction. So it's only natural that they're going to come into the game. If we go back to um, the second edition Call of Cthulhu that I, I used a lot, then there's very slim number of... There's about three or four um, items there's listed in there. Four. Four, right. Um, so, you know, they, they feature, but they're not a major thing. And to be fair, even in 7th edition, I mean, there, there is a whole chapter on them, and there still aren't that many in there. Yeah, not much more than a dozen. Mm. And even then, they more fall, un uh, fall under the category of alien technology or weird science, and they say necessarily what we would think of as like a magic artefact, if you're thinking of D&D &D parallels. Mm. Actually, that's a good point. Let's define what we mean by a mythos artefact. So they're items that the characters, the player characters might find in the game. But a lot of items that you might find, they are they form clues. They're like handouts, but they're just physical items. Indeed, sometimes we might actually give a physical item to the to the actual players as a as a prop or a clue. But those things don't really qualify as artifacts. No, I think what we're going to talk about in this episode is primarily, you know, these weird items of alien provenance, you know, perhaps ancient items or perhaps items of weird alien technology that, you know, will fall into the player character's hands, uh, will do interesting things and generally make the character's lives more complicated. Yeah, I think they've got to have some inherent, probably magical power. Though, well, when I say magical yeah. in inverted commas, you yeah. know, some some inherent power to affect the the game world, not I, just you know a a piece of ancient um, masonry or something like that. Yeah, and 
I mean, there's a very fine line sometimes in Call of Cthulhu between alien technology and magical items, because, you know, there's that whole idea that magic may well just be alien technology or, or science that we don't understand anyway. Thank you, Mr. Asimov. <laughs> that was Arthur C. Clarke. Oh, was it? Well, <laughs> damn it. Not saying it was aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Um, of course, there are items in Call of Cthulhu as well which are of human construction which also interact with the mythos. So, I mean, thinking about things like the Tillinghast Resonator or perhaps even Herbert West's reanimation serum, I think we'll cover those on a separate episode when we go into weird science at some stage. Yeah, there was one that almost made my list thinking of, um, thinking of it now that almost fits between the two categories, and that's something like the Silver Key. Oh, gosh. Because yeah. while it's potentially human origin... It's still very much a magical item. Mm. It's not science per se. That kind of straddles both camps. Yeah, I'd be much more inclined to think of that in terms of being a mythos artefact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I would because it's not a it's not a human construct in quite the same way. I would have said. Mm -hmm. And similarly, I mean, we won't go into tomes uh, again. I think that that's another big topic and and a subject for another episode. Yeah, another very big pigeonhole to fill. Mm -hmm. So what makes artefacts interesting in the game? They're a good way to bone your players. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great thing that you can present to say, oh, this is something fairly innocuous, but it does something really fantastical. So they're going to grab it and it is, it is a two-edged sword. It's a dangerous thing to have. They're Generally, gonna... that seems to be the case, particularly with... with I mean, we see it in some um, in some D&D artefacts. I can remember getting all the way through to the end of Ravenloft and then you know finding the deck of many things. <laughs> Aha! Oh, I'm going to pull... It's irresistible, isn't it? Yeah. Given the deck of many things, you have to pull one out, spend the rest of the game as a bugbear. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like, you know, in classic D&D as well, you'd always be finding, you know, gold. Oh, uh, magic sword. Great. And there's a potion. Is there a label? No. <laughs> um, so your options are throw it away, keep it, drink it. At some point, it comes down to drink it. But I think with most of the classic D&D magical items like that, they were either beneficial or cursed. There were very few that, that were a mixture of the two. Well, you, you talk about the deck of many things, and that's a classic example of one that was. And there were a few like that, but on the whole, they yeah, were no, either... I, I think there were quite a few. I mean, there were swords that had sort of personalities that, that you know, they were oh, yeah. bonus, you know, bonuses to hit, but they also had um, sort of uh, goals of their own or, or minds of their own almost. So I think there were quite a few, sure, there were quite a few loaded items with, which were kind of, you know, literally double-edged. But um, <laughs> but I think in, in a horror game, there's much more of a tendency to give the players what they want but actually, you know, undercut it with something bad on the other side. Yeah, personally, I wouldn't ever want to see an item in Call of Cthulhu that is entirely beneficial, that does not have, you know, any, any complications that it's going to bring into the lives of the wielders. Yeah, because it may be that its, its powers are really useful and don't have a downside, except for what you have to do to activate it. Yeah, or Something even like that. or the cost it it takes out of you when you use it. I mean, one of the ones that that comes to mind from the rule book is Mego Web Armor. 
mm-hmm. which is you, you've got this you know, incredibly powerful and useful alien armour that you can put on that sort of merges with your skin when you do so and that it, it then becomes part of you it's disfiguring it makes you look uh completely unacceptable to human eyes um yeah it's going to be useful in combat but you've just made yourself a complete outcast by doing so and when you rip it off you are ripping it off yeah yeah I don't know, it saps some uh, goodness out of you as well, I think. It takes nutrients out of your body, as I recall. Yeah, kind of I feed think so. itself. It's an organic yeah. armour. Mm-hmm. And if not, it should. <laughs> and, yeah, I think interesting artefacts, you know, it's not just that they're complicating the, uh, the lives of the players or their characters, but that they're bringing story hooks into the games, they're bringing interesting problems to be solved or interesting types of trouble that's going to spin off into, you know, scenarios, events, uh, you know, fun things for the players to get involved with. I remember one item, thinking of costs and activation, that was in a um, campaign that Paul ran, uh, without giving a spoiler, I won't name it, but involved a set of tablets that we had to get some writing out of them. Of course, you had to cover them and bathe them in blood to be able to do so. Yeah, getting hold of enough blood in that circumstance was, um, yeah, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily, you went insane, Matt, and turned up with two big, you know, buckets of it. Yeah, it was all fine. No one noticed anything wrong. It was all good. <laughs> and I think another thing that makes these items interesting is, yeah, they've got a fairly rich and weird history. I mean, if you look at the stories that these things come from, they, they, these aren't things that just exist in isolation. They've got hooks to ancient times or ancient creatures. Um, you know, they, they may have other kinds of baggage that come with them. Yeah, because if they are mythos artefacts, and, and we've said that it's not man-made things, then they're made by uh, the Migo or the Deep Ones or, 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 you know, some alien force. And, you know, they're going to be associated with them. So they're designed, they're not designed for humans to use, which, you know, brings in complications immediately. And will their users be aware of their use and able to turn them against the, the player characters? Well, even the fact that they're not designed for human use brings in interesting complications. Like if you look at a, a, a fairly... You know, what should be a fairly straightforward beneficial item, uh, the uh, Yithian or Migo lightning guns. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, they, they are potentially powerful weapons, uh, you know, very useful. They're not designed for human use, though, so if you try using them, there's a very good chance that you'll end up frying yourself. Even then, an elder thing using a lightning gun when we played um, Beyond the Mountains of Madness, he blew himself up with one. <laughs> Down to a good roll, I seem to recall. Yeah, he rolled and double zero in his first attempt to try and use it. Many cheers from the players. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, it took ages to get that smell of burnt elder thing out of my nostrils. <laughs> I think another game uh, that uses magical items in a very interesting way, in a similar way to Call of Cthulhu, which could provide inspiration, is Lamentations of the Flame Princess. I know James Raji is putting together at the moment, I, I don't think it's out yet, uh, the Referees book, uh, which, or at least a new version of the Referees book, <laughs> which will contain things like you know, monsters and, and magical items and so on. And you know, I, I wrote a couple of the items in there. And the remit that he gave the writers was that you know, they could do something useful, but they really had to bring trouble into the player characters' lives. 
Um, it, it was even okay if they you know, had no beneficial aspect whatsoever, just as long as, the, you know, they would be really bad news. <laughs> so that's the kind of thing you never want to find when you loot the room. Exactly. <laughs> I guess one of the appeals to me of using artifacts is that we have, you know, real-world type player characters, and yes, they might find tomes and writing, but they're, they're, they're rather mundane things albeit they might talk about the uh the, the mythos and then we can kind of go to the other extreme and, and actually encounter mythos beasties firsthand uh which is a rather dangerous occupation so mythos artifacts are a kind of a bridging step there they're mm. a kind of a, a at a at a remove but mm. you know we're actually touching something of the alien something of uh, the mythos and you know interacting with it and yes it's got you know pluses and negatives as we've said but it allows you to present your players with something of the weird without excessive and immediate danger and it also reinforces that cargo cult aspect that i like so much about the mythos which is you know those those people who get hold of items like this and think that they know what they're doing yeah, and, and fundamentally, they're like children playing with dynamite. I mean, I know this is not mythos, but I would say, you know, think about the stories in Harry Potter and how, at the very start, one of the first things Harry gets is that invisibility cloak. <laughs> and at first, that seems like a totally mundane... Well, not mundane thing, but it seems like a regular magic item. And... It's not, I think, until... Spoilers here, if you've, you're not familiar, then, you know, turn off for 30 seconds. But it's not until, like, the last book where we learn, actually, that's one of the, the three uh, Deathly Hallows. It's, mm -hmm. like, a, an incredibly powerful thing that, that, you know, that isn't a regular... Nobody else has one of these things. So I think sometimes we can maybe introduce artefacts and, you know, the players aren't going to appreciate just how important they are at first. You know, it's just another, you know, stone that maybe if you call it, chuck it off a boat in the Atlantic, it summons up deep ones. Okay, well, okay, well, we kind of know what that does. It doesn't seem that impressive. You know, I'll stick it on, in my wardrobe. But, you know, who knows what else that thing does? Mm. And maybe later on, it's actually the, the key to a whole campaign. Yeah, it's the key that opens the doors to really. Yeah, yeah. Um, all, all sorts of things. So, yeah, my point is, you know, you can introduce things that seem insignificant that down the line you know, pay off. So what are some ideas about how we can use artefacts in our games? One of the things that occurs to me, certainly straight off the bat, is a MacGuffin. Oh, you know, th th this is sort of the plot item that maybe some otherworldly creatures want to get hold of, uh, that cultists want to get hold of, um, or that has got some great portentous fate associated with it and somehow is fallen into the laps of the PCs. Mm -hmm. Or alternatively, the, the PCs need to get hold of it in order to fulfil you know, whatever goal they're working on. Yeah, it's an easy fix to uh, sort of think, OK, well, uh, there's this situation... Uh, what caused it? Um, okay, well, this artifact caused it. Maybe you need to put these pieces together or, um, you know, you need to break it or, or whatever. Um, and, you know, and there's there's a few clues to it. I mean, I'm thinking like horror on the, horror on the Orient Express. Yeah. Um, um, and there's a very similar thing in the campaign I'm playtesting at the moment. Yeah. 
thinking of when you said various cults want it, I can think there is um, one instance that um, I've used in a pop through game where it's an artifact has gone missing and then various different factions of the same cult want to grab, uh, grab hold of it and then get it back to perform their ritual. Another group wants to sell it and so on and so forth. And it almost becomes like a Maltese parallel, stand, um, Maltese Falcon stand-in um, in the course of the scenario. The Maltese Bayaki. Yeah. <laughs> and I definitely used that in Gatsby and the Great Race. I, I kind of had this situation set up. And then, you know, the, the MacGuffin, we'll just call it that, was was definitely an afterthought. It was like, well, how 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 would this have all have happened? Oh, okay, the guy did this with the MacGuffin and that 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 kind of triggered it all off. Another interesting way which we've sort of touched on so far is as as a trap for the unwary players. Um, I, one of my favourite examples of this from the fiction uh, is the plutonian drug from the Hands of Tindalos. The fact that you've got this um, th- th- this ancient or this rather otherworldly drug that has this um, interesting uh, and very alluring benefit for uh, players, perhaps, that allows them to project their minds back through time. Um, but, of course, it's a trap there because by doing so, they come to the attention of things that will now hunt them down and destroy them. And that you could not escape. And yeah, there are plenty of artifacts like that in Call of Cthulhu stories and you know, in scenarios as well. Thinking of the Plutonian drug, there's something similar that I can think of. Um, the name of the author escapes me. It's the same author who uh, created Yidra. Um, I want to say Walter C. DeBille, I think, that one of the drugs that they take in one of those uh, stories involves them to project their consciousness. So rather than going through time, they go through space. And that by going into space, they see the sun and that they see this thing that's lurking within, um, inside the sun in this other plane of reality that hates humanity. So as soon as it notices them, they notice it. Huh. And that it then obviously mm. starts to drive them to come after them as well. So it's, again, a parallel on the plutonium drug. And another way that you can use some artefacts is just as pure colour. And if you think about the story of the Call of Cthulhu, um, you've got that soapstone statue of Cthulhu that you know, turns up at some stage that starts giving some idea about what Cthulhu is, what he looks like, and, and really just sets the scene for a lot of things. And you know, th- this goes back to what you were saying before about almost using them like handouts. They're, they're you know, perhaps ways of... You know, setting the scene of foreshadowing or, or just adding something cool in there that might make the players nervous um, or think that there might be you know, some great importance to this. But it is just there as colour. Yeah, I think I would probably wouldn't ban that in with Mythos, art- mythos Artifacts simply because it doesn't seem to have a power unless you, you, know, you imbued it with some power. Um, it's, it's of great significance, agreed. Um, I've, used, I've used one in a scenario before where it's touched the, uh, touched the statue when it's been used in a ritual. Congratulations, make your D10D100 sand check now. Yeah. <laughs> and having said that, you know, I don't like artifacts that are you know, purely utilitarian. I, I think you know, perhaps in Pulp Cthulhu in particular, there is grounds for having perhaps slightly more useful artifacts. I know that, for example, when we were doing the Two-Headed Serpent, we put a number of artifacts in there that you know, we wouldn't necessarily have put into a straight Call of Cthulhu scenario because they are a bit more useful. <laughs> I mean, they, they still will probably bite you in the arse over time and they have sand loss associated with them or you know, real dangers associated with using them, but they are useful. And in most cases, both. 
And now, our top three artefacts from Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, as we mentioned, there aren't that many artefacts in the Call of Cthulhu core book, so we've we've limited ourselves to three artefacts total rather than our three each, um, which actually, sort of coincidentally, solves one of the things that's been bugging me about our top three lists before, which is they've really been top nine lists. You know, this is like <laughs> the bloody Lovecraftian word of the week all over again. So this is a top three list that actually is a top three list. <laughs> No, only three. No need to be so pedantist, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you cock. <laughs> at least, I think of the three that we've chosen, um, we can at least get that little multiplier in there by saying that apart from one of them, these are not unique items. So there are ah. multiple of these. Okay, Mythos Pickers. At number three, we have... The Crystallizers of Dreams. Now, this is a bit of a niche choice, I'll admit. Um, originally, they appeared in the Ramsey Campbell story, The Inhabitants of the Lake. Um, they feature more prominently in The Render of the Veils, also from the Cold Print collection. But there, when I was thinking about what item or what artefact would I choose, I realised this is actually the first item, in terms of a Mythos artefact, that I actually used in any scenario that was true to... It wasn't like a version of a Tilling Gas Resonator. It wasn't a version of this, that, or the other. It was just the original artefact. Um, these are yellow egg-shaped items which periodically emit a whistling noise, unquote, to the Cthulhu Mythos Encyclopedia. Um, described in the Revelations of Glacky, they are quite a useful little item that they allow you to bring back items from the dreamlands that when you sleep in their presence and that they are so they emit their whistling noise when there's no in theory way that they can emit noise they're just a crystal egg by all, by all appearance that when you're in the dreamlands you grab hold of something and then will yourself awake the item comes back with you for a time so it's a utility thing that you can find in the real world and you just have it by your bed while you're sleeping yes right mm -hmm. But the problem being that if you disturb it or use it a bit too often or you try and drag something a bit too big through, that there is a guardian spirit, this shadowy jelly jellyfish-type monstrosity that will come for you and will not stop if you, abuse, if you abuse the crystallizer. Does the thing live in the egg? Well, we don't know. It's This is part of the nice, nice thing about how I've used it, is that nothing is fully explained as to why it happens. The Guardian isn't explained, its origins aren't explained, just its use and what happens when you use it wrongly. The Guardian mm. sounds a little like those things that, that Crawford Tillinghast reveals with his uh, resonator, you know, it's mm. those things that live in the other dimension that pass through us all the time that we can't see or touch. Yeah, they, they're me thinking of, the, thinking of the story, they are quite physical. I mean, they just live in a different plane of reality. Whereas this is just more like it's an outline of something solid, like a just feel like float, big floating jellyfish, but it is made of shadow. Huh. It it also reminds me a little bit of the cruel ones from Unknown Armies. Yeah, a little bit. You could think of them like that. Mm. Guardians of a barrier or a gateway, mm. if that's indeed what the cruel ones are. Mm. Because it all depends on your interpretation. But yeah, I did actually. I think use a, a variant of this in uh, some of the stuff I wrote for the London box set as well. Uh, though it wasn't an artefact in that, it was a spell. And it takes a rather different toll over time, but it's, yeah, equally unpleasant. Mm. Now for our Raiders of Mythos artefacts at number two. The Shining Trapezohedron. 
We have discussed this to some extent on the podcast before when we had our discussion of the Haunter of the Dark. And of course, the Haunter of the Dark is where this artifact comes from. It, it is a crystal of alien provenance. And um, it, what makes it interesting, well, it does a couple of things. One is it provides visions or a gateway to other dimensions, other worlds. And the other is that well, there, there's something that comes through or is brought out by it, which is the Haunter of the Dark itself. And it's like a big D10, is that right? Pretty much, yep. I was thinking a big crystal D20, but hey, (laughs) 10 10 less size I can still live with. And one of the reasons I like this so much is is very similar to Matt's reasoning for his, which is the first Call of Cthulhu stereo I ever ran involved the Shining Trapezohedron, um, which is one that was from uh, Different Worlds many years back, which has been reprinted in uh, The House of Rillier. Um, so, uh, yeah, I won't give any more you know, information about it for fear of spoilers, but it is out there, and, yeah, I, I, I found it a, a very pleasing introduction to Call of Cthulhu. And a bit of a common theme there with, uh, with those two, that they both kind of allow one to... Um, you know, it's to do with kind of interdimensional stuff, kind of... A, and yeah. both crystals. And yeah. both crystals, yeah. So they're both kind of very much kind of utility items that... You know, allow you to see beyond, you know, this world or transport things from one dimension to another. Yeah. Well, I mean, with the Shining Trapezohedron, I think you'd have to be a special kind of character in order to see it as being useful. You'd have to be someone who was actually interested in seeing these alien landscapes and vistas and what lay beyond and taking the sanity hit that goes with that. Yeah, in other it, words, it, you'd have to be one of Matt's characters. Yeah. I was going to say, this sounds perfectly reasonable. What are, what are you complaining about? <laughs> Is there really much of an upside to the shining trapezohedron? Um, it looks pretty. Makes great paperweight. <laughs> okay. Uh, and if you paint numbers on it, you can use it as a D10. Yeah. <laughs> it always rolls. It always rolls the number you don't want. <laughs> and finally, it's our number one spot. It's the Mego Brain Canister. Oh, a classic. <laughs> you can't get better than that, can you? It's a can with a human brain in it. Or not necessarily human, as I will explain. A brain in a jar. I'm getting hungry now. So, we find them first in Lovecraft's story, The Whisperer in Darkness. And these things are about a foot tall. They're cylindrical, about a foot round, about a foot tall. And they're of a strange, unearthly metal. Indeed, a metal from Yugoth. And on the side of them are three um, holes or sockets, plugs maybe, that are arranged in the shape of an isosceles triangle. And so basically a, a Mego USB connection. <laughs> well, more like, a, like a, a plug socket that we have here in the UK, really, <laughs> okay, that, yeah, that yeah, kind yes. of alignment. Yeah, was, the, the Mickey Mouse here one. Yeah. I was also thinking the jacks that go into the back of our microphones as well have a similar three-pin configuration. Well, I'm thinking like yeah. a regular electric, electrical socket. Yeah. yeah. That. Oh, I see, right, yeah, I was thinking about the power cables that go in, but yes, yeah, yeah, it does sound like, um, yeah. Yeah, sim- same yes. arrangement, an isosceles triangle. Two at the bottom, one at the top. These devices, these Mego brain cylinders, allow the Mego to extract a brain from a living being, not necessarily a human, and put it into a canister with special liquids that preserve the brain. It's then sealed in an ether-tight uh, seal. 
I guess, to keep out the ether or to stop the ether coming out. I don't know. And uh, these things allow the, 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 the brain to be transported through the voids of space without taking any harm. And they're carried, you know, under under the uh, the Mego um, arms and uh, through space and they come to no harm. But they are just a brain shut up in a jar. So these holes on the front of it allow other devices, you know, additional artifacts, if you like, to be plugged in. And um, for the humans, there is a... Uh, one that is plugged in is a like a microphone, basically, to allow them to hear. Another one is a voice piece to allow them to speak. And a third one is, I like spectacles, to allow them to see. Without this, they're just in a kind of a dreamy void of, of not knowing what's going on and this takes me back to when i was a kid <laughs> you mean you existed in that dreamlike state i think i did well no i'll just say that when i was a kid i was about i think i was about seven or eight years old and i had problems with my teeth and they found that i had like an extra layer of what they described to my parents as an extra layer of teeth but i think it was <laughs> you're suddenly a shark boy <laughs> i think it was actually like an extra layer of cartilage between okay. my milk teeth and my adult teeth. And anyway, <laughs> I had to go into hospital and be uh, fully anaesthetized to have these extracted. And I remember lying on the on the uh, on the on the operating theater bed with a nurse alongside me saying, you know, talking to me and they gave me the injection, general anesthetic, and the nurse was saying to me, "Oh, you know, have you ever been in hospital before?" And I was saying, "No, I've I've never been to hospital at all." And she picked up this small glass jar and shook it and said, well, you have now. And in that jar were my teeth. <laughs> and I didn't know I'd been asleep. I didn't know I'd been out. Are you convinced that you ever actually woke up, Paul? I'm not convinced, Scott, no. <laughs> <laughs> this explains a lot. It's going to be like Jacob's Ladder suddenly he finds himself back in hospital again. <laughs> um, but going back to the Mego brain case, I kind of imagine, you know, um, you, know you get caught by the Mego... And maybe you get knocked unconscious. Maybe you don't even know you got knocked unconscious. Okay, cut to next scene. You know, you went into the house, you fumbled a roll. Next scene, you, you, you can see around you, there's, uh, there's your friends walking about and they're, they're kind of, uh, they've got some wires, they're plugging them into things and, and they're, they're talking to you, they're asking you questions. And you don't know, your brain is in a jar. <laughs> How would you know? I think there is um, in... Machinations of the Mego, the uh, Delta Green chapter book that they later reprinted in the Eyes Only collection. Um, I think there are rules in there for a when the character realizes, oh shit, I'm just a brain. Um, but then also trying to rehabilitate them back into normal society by coming up with this extravagant, uh, you know, a fake body, put the Mego brain case inside it, have a fake head, glasses, so you can't see the uh, lenses from the the, eye, the new eye sockets. And that effectively you're wheeled around in this motorised wheelchair that you can vaguely control. It's <laughs> sort of, sort of like a mythos version of Ironside. <laughs> but the story talks about how um, in the mystery and darkness, when he encounters the, the jars, the, the Mego brain cylinders, there are a selection of human brains in them, but then there are some, some Mego ones as well that have been extracted for whatever reason. Uh, and there are a couple of uh, inhabitants, I think, of uh, the planet Jupiter that have been put in jars. And it also implies that there are other kind of uh, interface uh, devices for creatures with other senses beyond ours to allow them <laughs> to sort of perceive the world in uh, whatever way and interact with the world in whatever way that they uh, that, that, that strange race does. So there's a lot you could do with these things. 
Just imagine if it's a really dumb brain in there. It's like uh, that uh, young Frankenstein, yeah, Abby Normal. <laughs> <laughs> Abby someone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you want to see one... <laughs> no, really, if you want to see uh, what the... If you want to see one, go and watch The Whisper in Darkness by the HPLHS. Mm-hmm. And you know, their their rendition of it at the the end towards the end of the film is uh, absolutely fabulous. I mean they they've they've got it there. They plug it in and they're talking to it and they've got the you know the the, the, the eyes and everything. It's um, marvelous. There's a lovely Easter egg that we found out when going to thinking back again as I always do to Gen Con and steakhouses and that kind of thing. Um, when we sat down with Sandy Peterson after a Gen Con a couple of years back, right? Um, where the topic of horror films, as always, would come up, and in particular about The Whisper in Darkness, where he said, oh, you've seen that scene where they pulls back the curtain and there's all the brain cases and they've got uh, numbers listed on them. Right. And they've got reference tags. Well, if you look in the credits afterwards, that particular brain case number blah is listed as Sandy Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Alternatively, if you want to see one, just take a look at the special shelf in Paul's larder. You might become the next empty, uh, fill the next empty slot, however. But <laughs> and I've used these in a scenario, in a kind of um, well, maybe a kind of red herring type way. So mm-hmm. you can rely on your players knowing about this this stuff. This is fairly common mythos knowledge. So if you describe something on a shelf being about the size of a kind of a catering, um, you know, catering tin of food, like catering tin size of baked beans, and it's got kind of like a couple of plugs on the side of it or on the top of it, yeah, some of them are going to start brain whirling. And then, uh, oh, there's some wires that you can plug in, and then they plug it in and it starts talking. Well, right there, I mean, they're, they're sold. It's Amigo Brain Case. You know, even if it is just like a tin that somebody's, you know, um, improvised some little speakers into and they're remotely kind of talking into a microphone and having hysterics at these people thinking it's a big brain case. Um, so, you know, the, the players aren't going to question it, especially if, you know, stick a pig, pig brain in it in some uh, jelly or something. Uh, you know, they're going to be sold on that. You know, I really want to do that in a game now, have it as uh, a large can with some jack plugs in the front where you can actually just plug a... Uh, yeah. connector into it oh yeah and then have a radio inside that on, on basically a pre-arranged signal i give to someone like tiff on the other side of the room like scream into it now yeah <laughs> when they plug it in <laughs> <That'd be> marvelous <laughs> the good friends of jackson elias would like to thank our backers for funding the podcast if you would like to become a good friend of the good friends of jackson elias just follow the patreon link from blasphemoustomes.com Once again, we have a great number of Patreon backers to thank. As I've mentioned on previous episodes, we do rely on Patreon to pay for the running costs uh, associated with this, our bandwidth costs, our hosting costs, and this fancy new equipment we're using. We do have some ideas coming up for um, additional equipment that that might bring something exciting into the show, but we don't want to get into that yet. Let's, Let's just build some suspense there. You tease. <laughs> and we also the other evening started discussing ideas for the blasphemous tome issue two mm. that's our backeroni fanzine so if you climb on board you'll get a copy it's hopefully going to be out uh, at christmas yeah be worried folks we're planning ahead <laughs> first time for everything yeah. <laughs> so i'd like to start things off by saying a big thank you to david buswell weibel I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, David. 
Yes, thank you very much, David. Indeed, thank you very much, David. And thank you very much to Vivian Dunstan. Hey, thanks, Vivian. Thank you very much, Vivian. And also, our thanks go out to Jason Beaumont. Thank you, Jason. Thank you very much, Jason. And now we move on to some $5 backers. Oh, no. no, no I, I want to see three, you know, when we, when we clink the cups together. <laughs> yeah. So those brave and generous souls who give us $5, we quite literally sing their praises. That's a real leap to call what we do singing. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, um, our first set of thanks goes out to Michaela Botticelli. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Michaela. Michaela. And the second one goes out to Brian Barrow. And our last cacophonous thank you goes out to Gabe Harkins. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But that's enough singing for now. Thank God for that! (laughs) (laughs) Actually, that's enough singing for eternity, I think. (laughs) It's a mix of gratitude to the backers for backing us, and I don't know what. uh, I I, I think some degree of existential horror at what we've just done. Yeah. This is is much like a mythos artefact, actually. (laughs) You know, it's, it's great that the backers are supporting us, and we're really grateful for that. But it has the, you know, the, the... the uh, the undercut that we have to stand in this hot room and make horrible noises to each other. <laughs> I, I think at some point we've got to have a video camera in here just so we can capture the looks of horror on the faces of the two people who aren't singing at any given stage. <laughs> or as, as I was saying to you during recording, the, the way that it looks like Scott's leaning in, staring at the microphone, going, I'm going to kill you, kind of look <laughs> on his face. And there was a part in that this recording where two of the three of us had to stand facing the corner while the other person made noises into I, the microphone. <laughs> I, I, I love the way you're talking about that in the third person. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, we have one additional 
um, perhaps slightly disjointed set of things to give here, because um, Christopher Glue has kindly upped his pledge uh, to $5, which would normally mean we'd sing to him. Now, he has actually specifically asked us not to. <laughs> to which my Thank answer, you, Chris. To which my answer is, you don't get away that easily. Oh. <laughs> I think if, if there's enough people that demand this, Scott, then, you know, I'm only doing it if somebody actually wants us to. Yeah, I can't I, believe anybody uh, really wants to hear this. I only bow to peer pressure, damn it. And he's the guy backing us, and he said, you know, don't worry about it, it's fine. I, I think I, I almost managed to talk him around. But, yes, if, if you... <laughs> Why? <laughs> if any of the rest of you want to exert some peer pressure here, then do contact us on social media and let us know whether Chris should be spared our singing or whether we should give him both barrels of it. Both barrels. <laughs> but, I mean, either way, thank you very much, Christopher. Thank you. <laughs> Indeed, thank you very much, Chris. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Now it's time for something a bit more pleasant. Our new segment, or newish segment, Ask Jackson. Ask Jackson. And this week our question comes in from... The Uncaring Cosmos. It's like the universe has sent us a love letter. <laughs> Dear Jackson Elias... What bits and bobs should an investigator of the occult never leave home without? All the best, the uncaring cosmos. Now, before we channel Jackson and get his, his wisdom on this subject, let's just mention that the uncaring cosmos does do a blog on horror gaming called, oddly enough, the uncaring cosmos. And I shall uh, attempt to remember to link to that again from the show notes. So what should the, uh, the hapless investigator always have about him or herself? Well, I think a lot of amateurs make the rookie mistake of carrying things like crosses, stakes, holy water, oh, silver the fools, bullets. The fools. Yeah, and that's not a good idea. Yeah, I mean, that, that's just, that's asking for it. I mean, it really you might is. as well just cover yourself in barbecue sauce. <clears throat> or garlic butter worked for one of our PCs in Horror on the Orient Express. Oh, God, I'm hungry again now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, Matt, I don't know why you don't start off with this, but I can recall in at least two games. Halfway about, yeah, maybe maybe it lasts till about halfway through and Matt will hand me a, a handwritten piece of paper <laughs> saying, I go and buy some dynamite. Can I, can I do this? And I'm like, yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. Just, we, we know how this is going to end. <laughs> you know you do all these laminated handouts, Matt. You should just laminate that note and keep it about your person. You are the laminating king. Uh, th thinking of, uh, rather than crates of dynamite, though, because they always turn up in games, I did think of one, uh, well, a collection of things that an investigator of the occult really should bring along, because it has a real good practical purpose. Like a mythos hamper? Kind of, yeah. A massive backpack or uh -huh. solder satchels that you can go on each side, like a pack mule, um, like horses' satchels, full of occult reference books. Things like... Might as well carry all 12 or however many volumes it was of the Golden Bough, uh, the Malus Maleficarum, um, the Magician's Handbook, or the, the Magician's, yeah, the Magician's Handbook. Because, A, the, um, someone made a great point about the Tom Clancy novels like this, that they are wonderful survival tools. A, they will stop a bullet because they are so thick and encumbersome. 
And B, if you're stuck in the wilderness and you've got nothing else to start a fire with, they're great sources of kindling. <laughs> oh, well, you've answered my question because I was going to say, you know, man, what are you living in the 1920s or something? Haven't you got a Kindle? But I don't think a Kindle's bulletproof. And Kindles, ironically, make very poor kindling. <laughs> yes, yeah, very yeah. good. Yeah, you just have a backpack full of books and at least when you're running away from the problem, you've suddenly got six points of armour. It's amazing! <laughs> I mean, we mentioned bullets earlier, but of course... You know, if you are carrying a weapon, uh, always make sure that you have enough bullets that the last one is there for you. Have you have your name etched on it? I've seen them do it at conventions like the Games Expo. They do have a name bullet with your name on it. There you go. But I think for any investigator, what what would be better than the Jujanta 200 Super Chromatic Peril Sensitive Sunglasses <laughs> oh, yeah. as worn by Zapod Beeblebrox in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which are, are perfectly fine. Except, much like sunglasses uh, that are um, reactive to bright sunlight and go dark to shield your eyes, these go dark at the first sign of danger. So they would allow you to, you know, you wouldn't see Shubnigarath pop out or a a dark young. Your glasses just immediately go dark and protect you from the sanity loss. (laughs) So you you go very dead, but at least you don't go crazy first. And what better protection against sanity loss is there than death? But I think the ultimate thing that any investigator has got to take out into the field, or at least if it's a modern-day investigator, is an MP3 player with every episode of The Good Friends of Jackson Elias on there. Because what better wisdom could there be to get you through those troubling times? And also, if you really get into a dire situation and need to drive that mythos beastie away, just play them some of our singing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you ever wonder what Eric Zahn was trying to hold back from that window? <laughs> us. He was trying to hold <laughs> us back. <laughs> our singing is so bad it reverberated back through time. <laughs> And finally, to sum up, our thoughts on Mythos Artifacts. How much do we actually use artifacts in our own games? I'd say sparingly, but for good reason, because you don't want to put them in every scenario. They are great ways to bone the PCs, but you want to bone them in that special way only every so often. (laughs) As part of a loving and committed relationship. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, personally, I, mean, I I really like artefacts. Um, I'd be more inclined to use them generously in a pulp game, just because I think um, particularly the more powerful utilitarian ones definitely suit the tone of pulp better. In a more purist game, you know, I'd, I'd use them sparingly, and the ones that I put in there would be absolutely toe-curdingly horrifying. I don't know if it's true for other people, but... My artefacts <laughs> tend to be made of clay because uh, <laughs> I like working with clay myself. So I don't know if other people have a tendency towards certain types of artefact, uh, you know, t- 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 kind of a style or material they favour. At mm. least it fits with canon being the horror in clay. Indeed, <laughs> yes. Yeah, actually thinking about it, a good percentage of the artefacts that I created for the Two-Headed Serpent were made of jade. Right. Green and snakes. No? Mm. So I can remember in one early scenario I did years ago, I had the, uh, it was, the, the, the vase was inscribed with uh, kind of mythos text, but the mythos text was on the inside of the vase. Um, so they could only kind of get to it by, uh, you know, by looking down the neck of the vase or actually ultimately kind of smashing the vase. Um, that would be possible to do, but it'd be really, really hard to create such a vase. Um, but I figured, you know, that was a, an interesting kind of twist maybe. Mm-hmm. 
And, and of course, to make that really interesting, what you do is you put a live venomous snake in the vase first. <laughs> so when they break it, yeah. With a jade happens. stopper in the top <laughs> of it, Scott. Yeah. yeah. Here's your warning. <laughs> That's with mine, all those, um, besides the crystallized that I mentioned using, when I've done variations on artifacts or created my own stuff, they've all been very mechanical. I like kind of the mechanical aspects of machines. Thinking of the George Powell adaptation of uh, the time machine, very, again, mechanical cogs, wheels, that kind of thing. That's always been a kind of aesthetic that's always kind of been interesting to me. So almost a kind of a clockwork aesthetic. Yeah. Well, Matt, I think it's time to, to turn off those three devices around Scott's jar now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think we've had enough of the singing for one week. I, th I think they've been malfunctioning for years. <laughs> that's, that's the only adequate explanation for my life. <laughs> so, it's good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com mm -hmm.